Tonight I want to um, answer a, a very important question, a very simple question. What is a Christian? And as uh, we examine our own souls, as we examine our spiritual condition, then um, we must ask, am I really in a state of salvation? We must know an answer to this question. You know, there was an American census uh, two years ago. 64% of the people in the country said that they were Christians. And if that uh, census had just been in the Bible Belt, perhaps 80% would have said that they were Christians. So high. Imagine it. Eight out of ten of your neighbors. Um, eight out of ten of all the boys and girls in your school. Eight out of ten of the people you work with, the spectators at a ball game, Christians. I wonder how they understood what that question was. Um, they weren't Muslims. They weren't Hindus. They weren't atheists. They were Christians. How do you understand what a Christian is? You know, you, most of you will go to gospel churches and you have a preacher standing before you like uh, I'm standing before you now. And uh, he, Sunday after Sunday, wants every one of you to become a Christian. That's the bent of his message frequently. Perhaps twice on a Sunday he's saying, pleading, urging you to become a Christian. What is he urging you to become? How shall we answer this question? What is a Christian? Well, what I intend to do is to take a verse from the Bible that brings before us very clearly some of the essential elements of what a Christian is. I want to extract from a verse in Scripture a number of principles. And if I can address you uh, preachers in the congregation at this moment, uh, I think this would be a very sweet summer series of sermons under the overall title of what is a Christian. And you go to the New Testament and you say, well, what does, how does Matthew describe what a Christian is? And then the next week, how does Mark and then Luke and then John? And then how does Paul describe what a Christian is? And then how does Peter? And has Jude and James? And how does John on the Isle of Patmos? And all these different men who will describe for us in their ways what a Christian is. And that would be a very um, bright summary season of preaching in, in your congregation. I'm, I'm going to the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to ask him this question, and um, I've chosen Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And that's uh, how we'll, we'll look at an answer to this question. You know the verse, uh, I have been crucified with Christ, yet no longer I live, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So let's have the first answer then, perhaps the longest. For me, the most interesting answer to the question, what is a Christian? And the answer is, a Christian is a human being. Ruby Wax is an American who's domiciled now in London, and she's a TV personality, and she's battled with depression, and she's written a book, How to Be Human. You think that's a bit strange, then, that a Christian is a human being? I think, though, that many people who are almost in the kingdom of God, who are on the borders of that kingdom, they, uh, they're nervous about crossing the border. They, they feel they're going to lose something, something that's uh, very important, that they've come to terms with in, in their own life, and, and that they're going to lose out if they become a Christian. They're afraid of terms like born again and uh, being converted. And I, oh, I would concede, and many of you would agree with me, that um, some religious people give the impression of great artificiality. Some religious people are a bit weird. When you've been shouted at for 20 minutes that you're going to hell, you feel like shouting right back at the preacher, don't you? You know, students, I lived in that town of Aberystwyth. It's a university town, 20,000 people, half of them students. I had my little seminary there, the men that went into the ministry. And there'd be students converted and they'd come for baptism, and their parents would come, come from England and Scotland, and they'd come to be there. And then we'd have coffee afterwards, and we'd chat downstairs while they were drying themselves. And the parents would frequently, frequently say to me, oh, I'm, I'm so glad that, uh, that he's become religious. I'm, 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 I'm glad about that. Just as long as he doesn't become extreme. That's what they say. Frequently say something like that. And I appreciate that. I had three girls and I never wanted them to be extreme. I wanted them to be sweet. I wanted them to grow up and profess faith in Christ and finish their academic course and get a job and marry and have children and be loving, ordinary Girls, extreme people are people who are suicide bombers. People who are inconsistent in their hearts. They believe in their lives. They don't show this. Saints in the church, devils in the kitchen and the bedroom. Ugh. That's why I'm intrigued what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live in the flesh. That's what he says, in the body. 
the fact of his conversion to Jesus Christ hasn't overridden the fact that he was still living in the flesh. He'd been through momentous experiences. He'd been through great trauma. He could say, I live, yet no longer I, (laughs) no longer that ego. I've been through such a trauma, through such a crisis, and there was a remarkable divide between his pre-conversion life and his post-conversion life. A virtual chasm between this Pharisee who hated Christ and then this Christian who just gave his life serving him and suffering for him. And Paul is saying, in spite of the momentousness of that change and the revolutionary consequences, he was still a man who was living in the flesh. He hadn't ceased to be human. He hadn't ceased to be earthed or grounded in ordinary human circumstances and conditions. He was still living a life in the flesh, living a life in this world. And he carried with him a a great deal of his basic humanity. And I think that is enormously important, that that simple fact. Um, Let's divide it up. He, He had the same molecular structure, the same DNA after his conversion as he did uh, before, the same temperament, the same skin color, the color of his eyes, uh, uh, his height, all his own individuality, his personal life. It hadn't been merged into some great standardized, computerized religiosity. Remember those scenes from Korea 20 years ago of a hundred men and a hundred women all marrying together uh, in a big football stadium and they'd only met one another the previous day? Oh dear. Paul had a human temperament. We find him telling us that there were days when he was pressed down beyond measure. He wasn't living on some great artificial high, some ecstasy, bubbling away and effervescing, some Urzatz kind of joy, loud. There were days when he was very quiet, he was depressed. He despaired even of life, he says. His temperament hadn't been overridden so that that side of his personality, his sensitivity, wasn't destroyed. We find him saying this, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He tells that to the church at Philippi. He'd learned it. It wasn't a matter of having a really self-integrated, laid-back constitution and psychology. It wasn't that. Even after his conversion, he was a man who found it difficult to be contented. There's much evidence to suggest that Paul was a great bundle of energy. He found it difficult to be restful and patient. I'm sure that temperamentally, before his conversion, he was a very irritable man. But he learned. He learned through the example of others, through the body in which he moved in, through 
the Bible through the secret place where you learn lessons with Jesus Christ you, you can't learn anywhere else. He learned to handle his temperament. He learned to manage his discontentedness. He learned to control his impatience. He learned to live with his irritability and to master it and to mortify it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't destroyed in a single moment. It survived his conversion. He brought it into the kingdom of God, part of the baggage of his sinful past that we bring with us. And he learned, he learned this great lesson of how to be a contented man. And then also, secondly, we find him with human affections. There was a marvelous passage, there's a marvelous passage in Romans where he shares with us his love for his kinfolk, his own people, and his great burden for his kinsmen according to the flesh. I could wish myself separate and accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. His conversion hadn't ended his Jewishness. He was still a Jew. He was still rooted in the culture of his own people, and he had this driving love for them. He came to a new town. He said to someone, uh, where's the synagogue to be found? They said, oh, go down this street and turn right, and, and you'll see it there. And there he went straight away. And he met people, and he met people who knew people that he knew, and so on, and... And then he knew how to speak to them and cared for them and, and felt affection for them. That must be true for us too, that we don't lose our ethnic and tribal and national and racial characteristics when we become Christians. Um, we still remain. Mexicans remain Mexicans and love their country and are concerned for it, and want the best for it. And I'm in London. There are six Welsh-speaking congregations in London. And I go there, and I, I, I preach to them. I, I love to be with them. And then, also, there are our native weaknesses. Paul wasn't suddenly given a whole new range of talents and abilities on the Damascus Road. He didn't suddenly find all his inadequacies replaced and renewed. He didn't suddenly become athletic or suddenly become musical or suddenly become a linguist. Um, he says at one place, which I find immensely comforting, that he heard, overheard the comments that people made about him. They said, well, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. That's what they said. He was no great orator like Peter was. He didn't have an overwhelming, dynamic presence that when he went into the room, people, who's come into the room? like John Wayne going into a 
a, a country tavern and the people holding their glasses wondering as this big presence comes in. Paul could slip into a room and you would notice that he'd joined the company. In those areas, he was born weak and he remained weak. And all of us, when we come to Christ, we, we bring our weaknesses with us to Christ, as well as give him our strengths too. And it may, it may come and it does come to a point in our life where we admire and appreciate what God has done in letting those weaknesses remain when we become Christians. Um, we know that Paul found his weaknesses draining. He felt them keenly. He longed to be delivered from this thorn in the flesh. Um, he yearned that he didn't have that. He could describe to God all the advantages that would come to him. His ability to travel and, and to write and think and counsel. If only this thorn in the flesh could be removed. He prayed three times that God would take it away. And God, God taught him a great lesson. He says, my grace is, is sufficient for what I want you to do. It's okay, it's okay. I'll give you grace for what I want you to do with your life, Paul. I, I wonder what we owe to our weaknesses. You know, our weaknesses make us cling to the Lord. We're only going to get by. We're only going to get through uh, meetings and counseling and taking a stand, only going to be a good father, a good son, with the strength that the Lord gives to us. So I'm saying to you, um, Paul remained a human being, that uh, he had a human being's temperament and physique, he had a human being's affections, he had a human being's weaknesses. And I'm sure too, um, a human being's interests. Remember he writes a letter to, to Timothy and he says, um, bring some books with you when you come to see me in prison and some parchments and a blanket would be a good idea if you could bring that along too. I don't think that one effect of you becoming a Christian tonight is that from now on, from this moment on, nothing matters but religion. I, I don't think that's the consequence at all. I don't think God wants us to be people, and the only thing that matters to us is religion. If you go to the Scriptures and read the book of Job, or Ecclesiastes, or Moses, or Isaiah, or or the psalmist, they have a wonderful interest in everything in, in God's creation. They're interested in music, in mining, in beauty, in agriculture, in commerce, in children's games, in navigation, in perfume, in politics, in travel, in medicine, in courtship. 
They're interested in weaponry and matters military. Because they, they, they think this is, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's his. And they're described to us what, what they did. Here's a woman and she's Lydia and she's an entrepreneur and she sells pur purple dyes and purple material. She dyes. She sells these things. They're involved in the world of their day, aren't they? And they're alert to its needs and they know its history. And Luke, when he writes the Acts of the Apostles, he tells us who was um, the governor and who was the, the king and, and who was uh, the emperor. And they were alert to its needs and they were thrilled by its achievements. John Calvin was what was called a, a humanist in the 16th century. That is, he was a classical scholar. He, oh, he knew he could quote um, the early church fathers in the original Greek. And, you know, John Wesley was the same. He lectured in classics in Lincoln College in Oxford. And, you know, um, J. Gresham Machen, who was the founder of Westminster Seminary, he loved mountain climbing. There's a picture of him on top of the Matterhorn. He wrote a little piece, Mountains and Why We Love Them. And when we had um, John Murray, uh, Professor John Murray, to speak at the Battle of Truth Conference, we'd say, uh, can, you, can you come at this date in April next year? And he'd take his diary out. He'd say, well, uh, this is lambing time, you know. It's not so easy. He died in the house where he was born in 1899 and went back there and worked. Bibi Warfield, he was a judge at cattle shows. He was uh, the American authority on shorthorn cattle. And he wrote in farmers' weekly magazines and newspapers about cattle. There's a well-known story of a man, and he's asked, does he have any siblings? He says, yes, I've got two brothers. One is a Baptist minister, and the other is a human being, he said. <laughs> and uh, it's that tension, it's that d dichotomy that I'm getting at here, and if you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're going to cease being a human being with a human being's personality and weaknesses and fascinations and interests at all. You're in the flesh. You're in the body. A student came to, um, to my church. He was a lovely boy, really mature, and he had a great hobby, and that was uh, photography. And I was interested, and he showed me some of his work. And then after a term or two, he came to me and he said he was selling his, his cameras and the lenses. He was selling them. I said, oh, why are you doing that then? And he said, oh, they're, they're, they're too much. I'm just being dominated by them. It's not. I said, oh, we'll give up for a little while. Have a rest. 
you know, it's a it's a good hobby. You you can do it to the glory of God. Oh, it's I'm become a slave to it. No, I I can't do it. And I was nervous. I didn't want him to be extreme like that. I want him to learn how to cope with a particular hobby. And many of you have got hobbies and interests. But he sold them all, and there we are. He was very keen on a girl in the congregation, and he showed his love. There was one girl for him, and so she could be cool, and but she liked him too. They married. There we are. Twenty years went by. One day the doorbell went in the manse, and I went to the door, and there they were. They were on holiday, and they wanted to come and see me. We had a lovely afternoon together, and spoke about the family and their church, and we prayed together, and they were going, oh, wait a minute, he said, let me take a photograph before you go. And he took out a lovely camera, and he took a, a photograph of us. You understand what happened? He gave it to the Lord. I, I don't want to be enslaved to this Lord, he said, and he gave it to the Lord. And the Lord gave it back to him. But no longer now, as his master, he wasn't a slave to it. He was, it was his slave. It was his. There was a time when children were born, and you know how fathers are taking photographs of their babies when they're born. And I want you to come to Christ. And I want you to know you've got to give everything to him. He can't be Lord of 90% and then he lets you 10% to do what you, what you want. It doesn't work like that. He, he, he's Lord of your life and you'll be thankful that he is the Lord. That that 10% you want to cling to, it's your interest in music. You play the guitar. You're interested in sport, in basketball, or football. Give it to the Lord. Yeah, come, come to Christ and ask, ask him to sanctify that, that play that game in be engaged in, in that hobby and, and, and do it to his, his glory. We're human beings in God's world. And nothing precious and lasting will be taken from you if tonight you say, okay, I'll have a go. I'll, I've been on the borders for a long time. I'm going to give my life to you. A Christian is a human being. Join us. We're just like that. Secondly, a, a Christian is... Someone who has the most exalted view of Jesus Christ. He has the maximal possible, the grandest possible, the greatest, the most stupendous view of Jesus Christ. I live, he says, but not I. I live by faith in the Son of God. God has a son. God is Father, God is Son, God is the Holy Spirit. And, and these three are, are one God. And as every father is 100% human, and his children, when they are born, they're not 90% or 95%, they are 100% human. So 
God is 100% divine, and his Son is also 100% divine. Now, what, when Paul says he's the Son of God, it's remarkable because of what he used to say about Jesus Christ. A very different view. He knew Christ, he says, according to the flesh. That is, he, he asked his buddies, well, who is he then? And he judged him by human criteria. Where, where was he born? What's his father do for a, for a living? What's he been doing? Uh, what, what school did he go to? Um, what income does he have? And then he listened to the teaching of Christ about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. And then he talked about the fate that had befallen him and God didn't stop him. God didn't deliver him from the death of the cross that Romans nailed him to the cross. And he came to the obvious conclusion that, that Jesus Christ was a bad man. He was a liar. He was counterfeit. He was a heretic. And being the sort of man he was, Paul wanted to uh, strangle the infant church in its crib. And then on the Damascus Road, God intervened in his life like he's intervened in the lives of so many of you. And he gave um, this man, this Saul of Tarsus, not a feeling, not an emotion, not some marvelous experience, not great darkness. But he gave him a whole new insight into who Jesus Christ is. He transformed his beliefs, his ideas about the Lord Jesus. He printed indelibly on the consciousness of the apostle that uh, Jesus Christ was God's son. There was that intellectual revolution that happened in him. God persuaded Paul as I would, oh, persuade every one of you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's nothing more foundational than that. That's, that's how people come into our churches. We say to them, now, who is Jesus Christ? And they say, he is the Son of God and my Savior. Welcome, brother. Welcome, sister, we say to them. That's the great affirmation the church said. Uh, we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest. The church wasn't bearing testimony to the thrills and the excitements and the, the, the money that we'd got since we became a Christian. Nothing like that. People came to John the Baptist and they wanted John the Baptist to speak to them about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist wouldn't talk to them about John the Baptist. I must decrease. He must increase. I'm not worthy to untie the, the latchet of his sandals, he said. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He was pointing away from himself. 
And, and that's what the Christian church is doing. And that's what I'm doing tonight. I'm drawing your attention now to the possibility of you remaining a human being and, and yet having this Son of God as your teacher and as the Lamb of God who will take your sin away and as a, a, a great shepherd king who will protect you and keep you and be with you till the end. So, um, a Christian is someone who has the most stupendous views of Jesus Christ. I believe in the pre-existence of Christ. I believe he's always been. At the, at the beginning, he was there. He never came into being. I believe he's the maker of heaven and earth, that he designed every leaf, that he planned the flight path of every comet, that he upholds the whole world by the word of his power, that every chemical and physical bond in the universe was created by and fashioned by and is maintained by the Lord of glory. I believe that our mathematics and our physics, as we understand them, this year in 2023, we are trying to express the thought patterns of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe one day he'll come again. I believe he's going to pull the universe apart, atom by atom, and put it all together in righteousness. And it'll be, oh, as it was before our father Adam fell. I believe that one day you and I are going to stand before him. And he's going to pass an evaluation of us. He's going to vindicate those of you who were suffered and imprisoned for his name and were degraded and treated abominably. Well done, good and faithful servant, he'll say. He'll welcome you. And then he'll stand before his father and uh, there'll be... Such a vast number of people, it stretches, you can't see the end of them, the size of them. Maybe like the sands on the seashore, and he'll say to his father, here I am, and the children you gave me. And that's the beginning of a wonderful new world. I believe that when you meet Jesus Christ, you are meeting ultimate and absolute reality. He is God. He is God. He's the only God there is. And all the fullness of God is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the whole form of God. You are a form of a human being. He's in the form of God. He is the glory of God. That, that's what a Christian believes. Jesus Christ like that. A Christian is more than that, but he's not less than that. He believes in the unique greatness of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, a Christian is someone who lives by that faith. Okay? He, he's applying, he's deriving consequences from now this view he has of Jesus Christ, and, and he's applying it from the moment he wakes up. Here I am, Lord, again. 
You've given me a night's sleep. And here's my heart. Here's my mind. Here's my hands and my fingers. And they'll soon be typing away on a screen. I give my life to you again. I present my body a living sacrifice to you. I'm in living relationship with you. So our theology doesn't just show itself Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock or an occasional visit to a, a conference. But our lives are dominated. They're controlled by a, a communion, a fellowship, a, a living, growing relationship between ourselves and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it means that we worship him. We fall at his feet. We humble ourselves. There's nothing more important in a definition of what a Christian does than he worships God. He, he gathers with other people who worship God uh, every Sunday. He's there. He's singing his praise. He's praying to him. Um, I believe that the worship in the New Testament was essentially Christ-centered. He was going out to this Lord who loved them and had transformed them and enriched them. And their prayers and their singing and their offerings were all Christocentric. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And they were singing to him, and they were living for him, and they were presenting their bodies and their families and all that they had. They were giving it to him. He was the king. He was the lord of their lives. And all their talents and all their ambitions and all the gifts they had uh, socially and intellectually and with warm affections, he had created them and entrusted them with those gifts. And their regrets and their sorrows, they were all Christocentric. He was their Lord. They were his servants. He was their master. They said, now I belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of life alone, but for eternity. And as they looked at life, and as they looked at the problems, and the doctor's appointments, and unemployment, and the debts that they had to pay, they looked at them through faith in, in Jesus Christ. He will supply all our needs. Don't worry, darling. Don't worry, honey. The Lord is with us. It kept them sane. He did. It kept them optimistic. The great persuasion they had. Oh, it's all right. You know, all things will work together for our good. Christ is on the throne. The Lamb is in control. And he's opening the book and he's turned the page. And ah, it's this page today. And he's written on it from top to bottom so that we can't interfere in his loving plans for our lives. He's taking us home. 
we're going to see him. And when times of stress come and sorrow and you lose your best friend and divorce and pain and trial, he'll work it for our good. He will somehow. Because he's loved us. God has loved us in Christ. The same identical love that he has for his, always had for his beloved son. Now we are embraced in that very love. So they didn't confine their faith then to schools of theology and to conferences and to Sundays, but there was a, a fruitful dynamic about their lives as believers in all the details of their domestic life, what went on in the home, when, what went on when providence tested them and trials came and struggles. They, they, they were living, trusting in Jesus. You, you've got to trust him. You, you, you must. You have every grounds to trust him. His, his kindness and patience and forgiveness, his sweetness, his love, his power. You, you, you trust him through, through the difficulties and the challenges of the day. That's what a, a, a Christian does. We take our faith into the fields and into the factories, into the schools and colleges. Christ is in control of my life. We have a great high priest. That's what we say to the world. God has given us convictions that turn into a confession. And the climax of our worship is always opening the book and finding the page and saying, Thus saith the Lord. We sung to him and then he speaks to us and he deals with us. And like he's brought you here, all of you, this, uh, this evening, because he loves you. He loves you. That's why you're here. And he loves me to, to make me his mouthpiece. That his purpose is that you should come and I should speak this word to you because he cares for you. You take no delight in, in your destruction. None at all. He desires you this night to, to become a Christian. Not, not a very good Christian. Not a very great Christian. Just a, an ordinary sinner who trusts in the sinner's friend to love you. The fourth thing about uh, a Christian is that he has an assurance that this is so. He has an assurance that Jesus Christ loves him. This is what Paul says, the Son of God, in this verse, Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's all so personal, this Blasphemer who tortured people and looked after their coats as they threw jagged stones into the faces of young men and women. 
And God loved Paul and forgave him. He picked him out of the dunghill he was living in his life. The assurance that, that we're Christians. The Lord is my, my shepherd. My shepherd. I am poor and needy, but the Lord thinks of me. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, principalities, powers, nothing shall ever be able to separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ my Lord. It's the language of assurance. He wants you to know. He wants you to trust what he says. He wants you really well I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus, trusting only thee, trusting thy great salvation, full and free. You imagine a, a child who isn't sure whether mum and dad loves him. His teacher goes to uh, the headmaster and she says to the headmaster, we got Bill in the class, I, I don't know. He's way behind all the others. Ah, oh, he says, I, I can't tell you everything, but it's a very difficult home. There's abuse in the home. There's a coldness. There's a lovelessness there. The boy doesn't know if he's loved. I want you not only to trust, I want you to know that God loves you. And he loves you now. And the people you look that you look at all around you, and you think, um, I could never be like them. They were like you one day, just like you. And the love of God was shed abroad in their hearts as they heard the gospel. This God can can love me. With what I've done, that one great sin in the past. And he can forgive that. That all my past sins are forgiven sins. And that he has buried them in the depths of the sea. And he's taken away all my snorkeling kit. And I can't go looking for them. I'll never find them again. All the guilt dealt with. Yes. All the guilt dealt with. God loves you with a love that's unconditional. He loves you with a love that's invincible. He loves you so much he will never, never let you go to hell. He's determined to save you and take you to be in heaven with him. A new heavens, a new earth. Do you know, your mother and father were believers, weren't they? And now they're in glory. You must do all you can to be with them one day. You must. And what you must do is you must trust in Jesus Christ and call on God to help you in Jesus' name, just like they did. And we will be forever. I think after I've seen my Savior, after I've looked at him and looked at him, long looks, 
I will turn my eyes to look for mum and Yola and dad and there'll be a reunion. Oh, what joy there'll be in heaven. Do everything in your power to be, oh, with those that have loved you and gave you breath and life and truth and such care. Paul felt loved. It's an intimidating world. It's a loveless world. It's full of neuroses and phobias. And here's this most majestic fact of all. God, its creator, loves us with a love that will not let us go. We're so sinful, we're so insignificant, we're so inconsequential. We've got so little to offer. But he loves us. The Son of God loved me, he says, and gave himself for me. And the fifth and last point is this. Um, a Christian is someone who is practically, practically omnipotent. Okay? Christ, he says, Christ lives in me. Isn't that magnificent? We look at the pressures and some of you are saying, but I could never keep I could never keep it up. I, I, you know, I, I, I feel close to God as you're describing him. I'd, I'd love to be a Christian, but, oh, I'm prone to wander and to grow cold. And I, I've tried to be religious in the past, and it hasn't, it hasn't worked. I'm sorry. How can I manage? And I'm saying to you, Jesus Christ comes into your life, into what we call the heart, the dispositional complex at the center of our beings, out of which all the issues of life comes. And the Lord Jesus is there. And you have henceforth illimitable access to an indwelling Savior. You have him. And he's there. He's there to pick you up when you've fallen again in the sins that so easily beset us. We keep sinning, keeps forgiving. His grace is greater than all our sins. He is. I believe Christ dwells in the life of every one of his children. He inhabits the body of every one of them. The triune God lives in us and he comes that close. Can you imagine our late queen being summoned from Buckingham Palace to help to clear some of the great blockages in the sewers of London to put her galoshes and her yellow helmet on and a plastic coat and giving her a shovel and can you imagine going down the ladder and then shoveling that muck? God, the Holy Spirit, he comes into your life. 
He comes into your mind and into your heart and into your emotions. And he gives you strength so that you can say, I can do all things. I can. Through God who strengthens me. That's what a Christian is. All right, that's my end. Am I a Christian? That's what you've got to ask tonight then. Are you living an authentic human life? Disciplined by the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Enjoying an inner witness to your heart that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. And you have illimitable access to him. This indwelling Savior. You have that. How are you relating to the rest of us then? Do you say, my brother, I'm sorry I've, I've been so long in coming. You've prayed for me for so long. My sister, do I recognize others then as your brothers and sisters? It doesn't mean that you're always complimentous. And that... At times we'll need a rebuke and an exhortation from you because you love us. Won't you tonight become such a man? That's why I've come from London here. That's why God has brought you from California, from New England, from Mexico. He, he's brought you here tonight because... He desires you to be his child and he become your loving father from this moment on. Coming to him is when the Holy Spirit takes the words of the message that you've been listening to and he applies them to our hearts and to our minds, to our understanding. And he constrains us and enables us to make a very great decision. That from now on, I belong to Jesus Christ. And he belongs to me from now on, forever and ever. I'm to be his. I'm to live to his glory. That's my end in life. I'm to know his blessings every day. And to know the great privilege of the smiling face of God. He smiles and smiles forever at me. You fall at his feet tonight. You, you talk to him now. You give your life to him now. You ask for help. And keep talking to him about how things are, how things have been. You tell him, tell him everything. And um, keep talking, and, and you will have an inner witness, an inner response, an assurance that he's yours. <laughs> and you'll be one in Christ. Y you do that.
you do that now. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for those great words that we've read. We've been crucified with Christ, and so our sins, all our guilt has been dealt with. It's as if they didn't exist because we were there in him having him having our condemnation in my place condemned he stood thank you for the way you've led us the parents you gave us the friends that came into our life the services we went to the books we read the sermons we heard on the radio and the tracts we were given Thank you for people who never gave up on us. Thank you for their persistence. Thank you for their happy spirits. Oh, how we wished we were like them. They were sinners too. And we pray now, Lord, you draw us and assure us and go with us with a love that will not let us go. Oh, grant that to everyone here tonight. Oh, we beseech thee, have mercy. Oh, Lord, have pity. Forgive, Lord. Forgive. And keep us from now on, not living for self, but living for the one who died that we might live. Even Jesus Christ, our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.